you're gonna leave my country If you're gonna say it's free I'm gonna need A little honesty Honest words It shouldn't be that hard Just a few honest words Is all I need I don't need no handshakes No firm look in the eye Tell me what you think I, I ought to hear I don't need no high life No fancy premieres Just tell me what you really think Without fear Honest words It shouldn't be that hard Just a few honest words Is all I need Love is a bitter food We've learned And that was A Few Honest Words by Taylor Dondlinger, which you can find on YouTube by searching for Taylor Dondlinger. At the end of the program, we'll hear the song Enough is Enough by Piano Man Paul, which you can find on his YouTube page, Piano Man Paul. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or PAC. You can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com, or you can follow on Twitter at BernieUS2016. You can also find out more about Bernie2016 at Bernie-2016.com. On that site, you can view the Flipboard magazine Bernie for President, where I've collected over 6,500 different articles and Twitter posts on Bernie and his run. Getting right into it, this episode, uh, first story is from, where is this from? From MSNBC, titled, Bernie Sanders Refuses to Give Up on South Carolina. And this is by Alex Seitzwald. 
Bernie Sanders is not giving up on winning South Carolina's first in the South presidential primary, despite many analysts seeing it as a lost cause for him, and even as he has precious little time before voters head to the polls. With just more than two months to go before the first contests and a day job back in Washington as a U.S. senator, Sanders could understandably look at a 53-point polling deficit in South Carolina and decide to cut his losses to focus on other battlefronts like the Iowa and New Hampshire contests, where the race is much closer. But that's not the tack he's taking. On Sunday afternoon, Sanders came out to this island near Beaufort for his eighth and final stop in the state over the previous three days. It was his second multi-day swing through South Carolina this month, which saw him crisscross the state to speak at black churches in North Charleston, attend candidate forums in Rock Hill in Charleston, and speak at town hall meetings in Orangeburg and Columbia. Quote, I know a lot of people would pull up their tent and go home, Sanders campaign manager Jeff Weaver told MSNBC. Bernie Sanders isn't really a quitter. We're going to compete everywhere, and we're going to amass as many delegates as we can. Sanders has spent more time in South Carolina than the other two Democratic candidates, devoting 10 days to the state this year compared to Hillary's eight and Martin O'Malley's six, according to Democracy in Action, which tracks candidate travel. And his campaign continues to pour money into the state to expand its network of paid field organizers and to broadcast new radio ads. Speaking to about 600 at a historic school here Sunday, Sanders asked South Carolinians for more than just their vote. Yeah, I want your vote, but what is even more important is we need to develop political revolution in this country, he said. But just getting their votes may be difficult enough. He could take 20 points off Hillary and still she's winning by a landslide, says Scott Huffman, the polling director for Winthrop University, whose poll this month showed Clinton beating Sanders 71 to 15 percent. Bernie's best chance to move the needle, the most in South Carolina, is by winning in Iowa or New Hampshire. And even then, it doesn't mean he's going to win. But it means he doesn't lose by 50 points. And that would set him up for the SEC primary, Huffman added, referring to the cluster of southern states that hold primaries or caucuses on March 1. So Sanders definitely behind in the polling in South Carolina. But like he has done in earlier places where he visited states that don't normally vote heavily Democratic. He is out there with a uh, multi-state strategy, a 50-state strategy, to get as many voters um, information about him. And that means face-to-face, and that means, you know, small rallies and large rallies in places where it uh, the the polls aren't leaning in his favor. Um The Democratic primaries are not winner-take-all, so depending on the percentage of votes you get, you will win some delegates as long as you cross a particular threshold. So the larger the percentage of votes that Bernie can capture, the more delegates he will achieve, even in states where he doesn't outright win the popular vote. So the political revolution is very important to Bernie Sanders. He's got a very um, aggressive agenda. And 
even though most people in the country support most of the points on his agenda. Uh, that does not go for most of the elected officials in the country who, if they supported these same things, then maybe we would have seen more progress on these things in the past. So one thing that is extremely important, um, in addition to electing Bernie Sanders as president, is staying active and becoming part of what he calls the political revolution. And that means having um, our own media supporting those actions and those activities. So one such place that has uh, started up already is thepoliticalrevolution.org. And their kind of logo or tagline is join the revolution. They have the money, but we have the votes. The political revolution has begun. You are invited to participate is how their website starts off. The political revolution consists of awake, aware, and active people who pay attention to what is really happening in our world and choose to get involved by offering solutions and working towards the betterment of all people. The political revolution is peaceful, positive, and powerful. Our battles will be fought in the voting booth. And I would even extend that while uh, many of those battles will be um, fought in the voting booth and... uh, through our elected representatives, I think in parallel, we also need to create and support institutions that work outside of the electoral process. Um, And having that uh, two-pronged or maybe even multi-pronged, there's probably some other uh, prongs that are important as well. Having that multi-pronged approach is the only thing that is going to succeed in moving our country in the right direction. So check out uh, thepoliticalrevolution.org. They have some information on some electoral um, politics, um, who else is running down the ticket besides who is running for president. They have uh, topics including issues, gerrymandering, registering to vote, meeting candidates, how you can help, And they have some flyers there as well. So this is a uh, new site that is set up to really support that political revolution that we need to create and develop and maintain in order to successfully move Bernie's ideas and other positive ideas forward. And my next story is from WPTZ.com. This is by Brad Evans. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders will appear on New Hampshire's Democratic presidential primary ballot. The state's ballot law commission unanimously supported Sanders' eligibility on Tuesday, following a challenge based on his longtime status as an independent. The complainant was filed by Republican New Hampshire attorney Andy Martin. He said Sanders' self-identification as an independent on the U.S. Senate's website makes him ineligible to declare himself a Democrat in New Hampshire. The paperwork to run in the primary requires candidates to declare themselves a registered member of the party in which they intend to run. 
Quote, I believe that the Secretary of State's decision to accept Senator Sanders' filing as a Democratic candidate for president was right, and the fact that the ballot law commission in a unanimous vote to uphold that is correct as well, New Hampshire Democrat Party Chairman Ray Buckley said. So not unexpectedly, uh, as Sanders did file to run as a Democrat in the primary in New Hampshire, not in, in the New Hampshire primary because it's a first-in-the-nation primary, it, it attracts many, many, many candidates. I mean, there will probably be 20 or more candidates on the Democratic primary ballot in New Hampshire. It also has a fairly low threshold to uh, getting on that ballot. I believe only a fee is required to get on the ballot in New Hampshire. Um, and there may be an optional method to get on the ballot uh, via um, signatures, collecting signatures in the districts in New Hampshire. But it is a, a pretty simple method of getting on the ballot in New Hampshire. So the New Hampshire residents, and I used to be one of those New Hampshire residents, um, often get a very broad spectrum of um, candidates to vote for in the Democratic and the Republican primaries in that state. But not not unexpectedly, there was a challenge to Bernie Sanders' status as a Democrat, and that will probably happen in some other states as well. And the commission and the secretary of, let's see, the New Hampshire Democratic Party chairman, Ray Buckley, both conclude and support Sanders running on the ballot in New Hampshire as a Democrat. So if you are in New Hampshire, you will have the opportunity if you are a Democrat. And I definitely check the rules on this. You may be able to vote in the Democratic primary if you are unenrolled or technically independent. Um, but definitely check the rules. If, if that is no longer the case, then you will need to register as a Democrat to, uh, to vote in the Democratic primary in New Hampshire and any anywhere you are, any state you're in, um, check your rules, find out what the deadline is for registering if you're not registered, or if you're not registered as a Democrat, find out if you need to be registered as a Democrat to vote in the Democratic primary. There's a uh, good website that lays out a lot of those rules, and I don't have it handy, but I will uh, cover it in a future episode. On to our next story. This story is by Roland Vincent. And this is from Armory of the Revolution. Nina Turner has changed the game for Bernie Sanders. In what may be the most brilliant move by any politician in this election cycle, former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner has jumped ship from Hillary to Bernie. Nina Turner is one of the most respected and influential black leaders in the country. Turner's support of Bernie could turn the tide in the African-American community, dramatically increases the chances that Bernie will win the nomination, and may propel Turner onto a vice presidential short list. Recent polls show Hillary's support among African-American voters at 84%, with Bernie's at just 7%. Those numbers are seen by pundits as proof that Clinton has a lock on black votes. The numbers should be read as the potential for Sanders to make huge inroads with black voters, most of whom are unfamiliar with his record and his proposals. 
So this is a big move and is very important to Bernie's campaign um, for Nina Turner to come out and publicly support him. And she introduced him at a rally in, I believe it was in Cleveland, uh, fairly recently. Um, and her support of Bernie should be very, very helpful to his campaign. And as this, uh, as this story indicates, um, helps her in position herself as a potential vice presidential candidate. I don't know enough about her um, to offer any opinion of my own on whether she would be a, a good um, potential pick for Bernie. But I think it's an interesting idea, and uh, I will be uh, taking a look more into her background um, because she she may well be a good choice for vice presidential candidate on a ticket with Bernie. In addition, uh, in trying to reach out to the black community and black voters, um, Bernie Sanders took part in a presidential forum um, that was sponsored by um, BET and another organization, which I think is called the 2020 Leadership Organization. I'm not sure this uh, this article I have up here right now mentions that other organization by name, but this is by Tim Marcin. Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders called for criminal justice reform and discussed the Black Lives Matter movement Saturday at the BET's Presidential Justice Forum. Sanders opened his speech at the bipartisan event by listing off what he called horrible facts. And instead of reading through the quotes in this article, I'm going to play you um, an excerpt of that speech that Bernie gave Please join me in welcoming to the stage United States Senator Bernie Sanders. Thank you very much. Reg, thank you very much for the introduction. 2020 Leaders of America, thank you for putting on this important conference. And let me from the start suggest I am not Frank Underwood. <laughs> no way. Um, the issue you are talking about is wrenching the hearts of the American people. Uh, consciousness on criminal justice reform has risen significantly in the last couple of years. A lot of that has to do with uh, this kind of invention here, where for years a lot of crimes were being committed that were not being talked about. But now when they uh, get videoed and they get on television, they are being talked about, and that is a very, very good thing. And it is clearly time that we start talking, as we have in this election, about the really disastrous effects of too many politicians trying to woo too many elections by locking too many people up. Now, throughout our lives, all of us can remember we're going to be tough on crime, we're going to throw away the key, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But all of that has resulted 
in an international disgrace, and I trust that all of you know it, that the United States of America today has more people in jail than any other country on earth, including China, which is an authoritarian communist country four times our size. And we as a people have to lay this issue right on the table. And that is that people in American jails are disproportionately, to a very significant degree, people of color. And that is the reality in America today. And that is a reality that has to change. Too many lives, too, too many lives are being destroyed. And together, we are going to bring about major reforms of a broken criminal justice system. Let me start with an issue that is on everyone's mind, and that is the continuing struggle for racial justice in America. And let's start with the facts. These are not pleasant facts, but these are facts we have got to discuss. If current trends continue, approximately one in four black males born today a child born here in South Carolina today can expect to spend time in prison during his lifetime. This is an unspeakable tragedy. Blacks are imprisoned at six times the rate of whites. People of color are incarcerated, policed, and sentenced to death at significantly higher rates than their white counterparts. One in every 15 African-American men is incarcerated compared to one in every 106 white men. A report by the Department of Justice found that blacks were three times more likely to be searched during a traffic stop compared to white motorists. African-Americans are twice as likely to be arrested and almost four times as likely to experience the use of force during encounters with the police. African Americans make up two-fifths of confined youth today. African American women are three times more likely than white women to be incarcerated. Once convicted, black offenders receive longer sentences, 10% longer, than white offenders for the same exact crimes. 13% of African-American men have lost the right to vote due to felony convictions. And this, by the way, is an issue we don't talk about very much, but it is of huge political consequence. 13% of African-American men have lost their right to vote. These are shocking statistics, to say the least. But before we even address them, we have to deal with the most urgent and obvious issue that needs to be addressed head on. And that is the killing of African-Americans by police or deaths while in custody. The seemingly endless stream of tragedies we hear about screams out 
for justice. The Black Lives Matter movement, which has arisen in response to these deaths, has done a needed and commendable job in raising public consciousness on this issue. The proliferation of cell phone video has brought the reality of these deaths into the living room and onto the computer screen of millions and millions of people throughout our country. I know you have heard these names before, but they bear repeating so we do not lose sight of the real human price being paid. Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Walter Scott, Freddie Gray, Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice, Samuel DeBose, Rakia Boyd, and many, many others. But people must do more than just echo the phrase, Black Lives Matter. We must put actions behind those words. Actions that will bring about the fundamental reform that is needed in the face of this crisis. Criminal justice reform must be the civil rights issue of the 21st century, and the first piece that we must address is police reform. The killings of unarmed African-Americans has got to stop. Across our nation, too many African-Americans and other minorities find themselves subjected to a system that treats citizens who have not committed crimes as if they were criminals. A growing number of communities do not trust the police, and police have become disconnected, alien to the communities that they are sworn to protect. At the federal level, we need to establish a new model police training program that reorients the way we do law enforcement in this country. With input from a broad segment of the community, we must reinvent how we police America. A critically important component of this reform is a set of new rules on the allowable use of force. Lethal force must be the last resort, not the first resort. Police officers need to be trained to de-escalate confrontations and to humanely interact with people who have mental illnesses. Someone, and by the way, this happened in my own state of Vermont, not a minority. Woman called the police department because her mentally ill son was acting out. Son got shot and killed. And that happens all across this country. We also need police forces that reflect the diversity of our communities. And that must extend into the leadership of police departments and into the training departments. Clearly, we need greater civilian oversight of police departments and ongoing and meaningful community engagement. 
We need to federally fund and require body cameras for law enforcement officers to make it easier to hold them accountable. But we also must establish standards and processes to protect the privacy of innocent people. Our Justice Department must aggressively investigate and prosecute police officers who break the law and hold them accountable for their actions. We may need to examine when current federal civil rights status provides the Justice Department to protect the people of this country. We need to require police departments and states to provide public reports on all police shootings and deaths that take place while in police custody. And the federal government should provide funding to help state and local governments adopt these new policing standards. State and local governments who participate in police reform should be rewarded by the federal government. Those who do not should have federal justice funding withheld. Further, and very importantly, we must demilitarize police departments around this country. You know, sometimes you look at the television and it looks like there is an invading army. It looks like you're in Iraq rather than looking at a local police department. We have also got to establish standards and crack down on communities that are using their police forces essentially as revenue generators. Communities that receive an inordinate amount of their local funding through fines and citations need to be stopped. Finally, we have to deal with the level of policing in African-American communities across this country. There is a strong sense among many activists and others that I have spoken to that there is over-policing in some African-American communities. Now, I know that some will say that's because there is more crime in those poor black urban communities. But if we jump to that conclusion, we should examine recent 2014 Bureau of Justice Statistics report examining the relationship between household poverty and non-lethal violent victimization, which includes rape or sexual assault, robbery, aggravated assault, and simple assault. And this is what it found for the period studied from 2008 through 2012. Poor people living in urban areas had violent victimization rates similar to poor people living in rural areas. Poor urban blacks had rates of violence similar to poor urban whites. Now, I represent in Vermont a rural state, and I have to tell you that I do not see the level of intensity of policing that we seem to see in so many cities around the country. Now, of course, 
People committing violent crimes need to be apprehended, tried by a jury of their peers, and if they are convicted, they need to go to jail. Nobody debates that we want criminals and people who are dangerous to law-abiding people off of the streets. And let me also say, and I say this as a former mayor, somebody who worked very closely with the Burlington, Vermont Police Department, that the vast majority of police officers in this country are honest, they are working hard, and they do a good job under very, very difficult circumstances. <laughs> However, we cannot ignore the fact that the majority of people living in our cities are trying to work hard, to play by the rules, and to raise their children safely. There are neighborhoods in this country, and you all know this, where mothers, it's hard to believe in America, but it's true, where mothers are afraid to let their children outside, go outside for fear of gang violence and drugs, and we owe it to those mothers to get dangerous people off the streets. But mothers should not be afraid of their children being targeted by the police because of the color of their skin. And they should not be worried that a routine interaction with law enforcement ends in, in inappropriate force or even death. We do not want any mother in America to have to worry about that. It appears that we have a criminal justice system which says that a not only is a bank too big to fail, but bankers are too big to jail. And by the way, all of that the fact that hundreds and hundreds of lives of young people have been destroyed because they get police records for smoking marijuana, and the fact that no CEOs of Wall Street firms get police records, all of this has a huge impact upon people's attitude toward the government, upon justice, upon fairness. But in that regard, our attitude toward marijuana must change, and I'm happy to tell you that I've introduced legislation which takes marijuana off of the federal list of controlled substances. It is frankly absurd under the Controlled Substance Act that marijuana is a Schedule I drug alongside of heroin. Makes no sense at all to me. So we want to get the federal government out of the business of making marijuana illegal. If states want to go forward, that is their right to do that, and they should be able to do that without legal impediments from the federal government. Furthermore, when we talk about reforming a broken criminal justice system, we need to end prisons for profit. And I've introduced legislation to do that, and as president, I will make that happen. It is simply wrong for corporations to be making profits through the incarceration of fellow Americans or running detention 
centers. That is not an area where people should be making profits. We furthermore have got to invest in drug courts and interventions for people with substance abuse problems. And our goal must be that people with substance abuse problems, and by the way, this is a huge problem from one end of this country to the other, huge problem in my state. People say, oh, Vermont, you know, not a drug problem. We have a very serious problem with opiates and heroin. Okay? It is a problem all over America. But what we must understand is that substance abuse is a disease, not a crime, and we've got to treat it as a health issue. And in that regard, we have got to do a lot, lot better with mental health in America. We need a revolution in how we treat mental health. When people want to get off of heroin, get, heroin, get off of opiates, they should be able to get into a treatment center and get the care they need, not have to wait for two years. In addition, we need to end mandatory minimum sentencing and give judges the discretion to better tailor sentences to the specific facts of a given case. As you know, judges often now do not have discretion. The federal system of parole needs to be reinstated. For people who are serving long sentences, there needs to be an incentive for people to make different choices and earn their way to a shorter sentence and a path to a productive life. For people who have committed crimes that have landed them in jail, there needs to be a path back from prison. And that includes a restoration of full voting rights. Now, I don't have to tell you that, by and large, we do a pretty bad job in making sure that when people are released from jail, they don't end up in jail again. Clearly, you don't have to be a criminologist to understand that if somebody leaves jail without job training, without education, without money, without housing, the odds are that they will fall back into the same environment that got them in jail in the first place. And that is a waste of human life, and that is a huge waste of taxpayers' dollars, and we have got to end that. And if we are truly going to move away from over-incarceration, there are a number of systemic issues that we must address, but let me just mention two of them now. The first is the disparity in education for children in poor communities and poor communities of color in particular. Black children who make up just 18% of preschoolers account for 48% of all out-of-school suspensions before kindergarten. 
And that just tells you how systemic this problem is. We are failing our black children before kindergarten. Black students were expelled at three times the rate of white children. Black girls were suspended at higher rates than all other girls and most boys. According to the Department of Education, African-American students are more likely to suffer harsh punishments, suspensions, and arrest at school. We must address the lingering unjust stereotypes that lead us to label black youths as thugs or super predators. Let me tell you just the story, if I might. Southern part of my state, there was a principal, she was retired, who was absolutely fierce and determined that kids in her high school would not drop out of school. She would personally kill them if they dropped out of school. She knew all of these kids. She assigned mentors who were available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so that if a kid had a family problem at 3 o'clock in the morning, there was somebody that kid could call. If a kid was dealing with drugs or getting involved in that, the mentor was there. The truth of the matter is, if we are serious about keeping kids out of jail, if we are serious about making sure our kids are in school or have jobs, yes, we can do that. We do not need to allow millions of kids to fall through the cracks, to hang out on street corners, to get into trouble, to end up in jail, and to see their lives destroyed. We need to give all of our kids, regardless of their income, a fair shot at attending college. Now, my parents never went to college. My dad dropped out of high school. My mother graduated high school. And in our family, which was lower middle class, we didn't know many people who went to college. That's just the way it is. There are millions of kids in this country whose parents never went to college. They don't know anybody who went to college. And the idea of getting a higher education is about as meaningful to them as going to the moon. It ain't going to happen. And that is why I have introduced legislation and will make happen as president a process by which every public college and university in America is tuition free. Now, why is that important? Well, we know the obvious reasons why, so people don't come out of school deeply in debt and so forth. But here is a more important reason, and I want you to think about it, because it really is revolutionary. What it says is that every child in America, whether in my hometown of Burlington, Vermont, or here in Columbia, South Carolina, if you do your schoolwork well, if you pay attention, if you are serious about school, you will be able to go to college regardless of the income of your family. Millions of kids and teachers will have hope and belief that they can make it into the middle class if they do well in school. We have to stop 
the criminalization of classroom misbehavior. Who in this room was not horrified by the video that we recently saw of the resource officer throwing a young girl across the room right here in South Carolina? There is a pipeline from school to jail that we have to turn into a pipeline from school to a promising future. The second issue that we have got to deal with, because all of these issues are interrelated, they have to be dealt with in a holistic manner, is the issue of poverty. We are living today in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. But very few people know that because most of the wealth, almost all of the wealth, and almost all of the income being generated today goes to the top 1%. We have 47 million people in America living in poverty, and shamefully, and this is a total disgrace, we have the highest rate of childhood poverty of almost any major country on earth. 20% of our kids, close to 40% of African-American kids. Now you tell me the justice of a society in which the top one-tenth of 1% 1 owns almost as much wealth as the bottom 90%. Tell me the justice of a society in which we are seeing a proliferation of millionaires and billionaires and yet we have the highest rate of childhood poverty of almost any major country on earth. That is a disgrace. That is not what America is supposed to be about. And together, we are going to end that. We live at a time when most Americans don't have $10,000 in savings. Imagine that. Wealthiest country in the history of the world, the majority of people in this country do not have $10,000. What happens if you have an automobile accident? What happens if you get sick? What happens if there's a divorce? And millions of Americans, age 50, 55, have zero in the bank. They have no clue as to how they're going to retire with dignity. Most black and Latino households have less than $350 in savings. The black unemployment rate has remained roughly twice as high as the white rate, rate over the last 40 years, regardless of education. Let me tell you another story. I asked some economists a few months ago to do a study for me. I asked them to tell me what the rate of real unemployment, that is, unemployment and underemployment, for young people in this country, 17 to 20, who graduated high school, didn't drop out, graduated high school. This is what they said. White kids, 33%. Latino kids, 36%. African-American kids, 51%. That's an entire generation of kids graduating high school, want to get their feet on the ground, want to get out of the house, want to start their adult lives, nothing out there for them. So let me repeat. It makes a lot more sense for us to invest in education and jobs 
rather than jails and incarceration. Now, I won't give you a long speech about how we deal with the collapse of the American middle class and 47 million people living in poverty, but this is what I will tell you. We have got to create millions of jobs in this country, and one way we do it is by rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure. We're going to put 13 million people back to work at good-paying jobs. Another thing that we have got to do is recognize that a $7.25 minimum wage is a starvation wage. Got to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. And that, to my mind, is 15 bucks an hour over the next few years. We have to make sure that poor communities have access to credit on fair terms, not payday lenders. You know, the pathetic truth is, it is very expensive to be poor. Do you know what I mean by that? All right. You cash your check and you pay an outrageous sum of money because you're not able to get a bank account in a normal bank. We've got to change those things. Um, let me just conclude by thanking you all very much for holding this conference on an issue. I get around the country a whole lot. These issues that we're talking about today are on the minds of millions and millions of Americans, not just African Americans, but the entire community. We want to live in a nation in which we're not spending $80 billion a year locking up our neighbors. We want to live in a nation where an African American can get in to his or her car and not worry about being dragged out of the car and being found dead three days later in a jail. So we got a lot of work in front of us. But this is an issue, to my mind, of enormous importance. It's an issue that we can and must work on together. And I have absolute confidence that when we come together, this is an issue that can be resolved. Thank you all very much. And that was part of Bernie's speech at the Presidential Justice Forum held by BET. And at that forum also, they had a straw poll to judge the um, the mood of the crowd as far as when it comes to the nominations for president. Both the Democratic and Republican ballots were handed out to that crowd. And on the Democratic side, Sanders wins national drum poll in a landslide. And this is a story by G.A. Case Beer. G.A. Case Beer, C-A-S-E-B-E-E-R. What are the chances of that being a pseudonym? If not, a great name, Mr. Case Beer. Or Mrs. Apologies. It was uh, initials only, so I won't presume gender. Uh, Sanders wins national drum poll in a landslide. Well, that is if you consider a 42% victory a landslide. Clinton did not appear at today's 2020 presidential forum, which mainly dealt with criminal justice reform. Three candidates did, however, feel the subject was important enough to talk about in the forum setting, and those were Democratic candidates Bernie Sanders and Martin O'Malley, 
while Republican candidate Ben Carson showed up and proved why he should not be president. Drum poll results from 2020 presidential forum Democratic ballot. Sanders, 65%, Clinton, 23%, and O'Malley, 12%. This particular drum poll was conducted at the 2020 Presidential Forum on Criminal Justice at Allen University on Saturday, November 21st. So this and other similar polls, there was an Iowa Youth uh, Caucus event um, which had a poll in which Bernie Sanders won by a large margin as well. So there's a a lot of unofficial polling, and these are unofficial polling. These do not have the same type of um, controls that official polling has, um, but official polls can be slanted in one way or another also. But they do attempt, in for the most part, in most cases, they do attempt to overcome any built-in biases in the official polls. So there is definitely um, a lot to be said for Bernie's support when he has the visibility um, of the people. When people hear what he has to say, then they, in the Democratic side anyway, there tends to be a strong increase in support for him. And that's what our next story is about. This next story from Inquisitor.com. It is called Bernie Sanders Gains Supporters Despite Media Blackouts. While Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and I didn't mention, this is by Reno Berkeley. While Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton get the lion's share of media attention, fellow presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders continues to trudge along, largely ignored by the mass media. The senator who calls himself a democratic socialist has seriously challenged the democratic establishment since he announced his intentions to run for president. Despite corporate media attempts to black out his appearances, Bernie Sanders' support continues to climb. And this this is widespread. This particular story touches on a couple of more recent incidents and examples, but you know, Bernie's events do not get the national media attention, even when he's got 20,000, 25,000, 30,000 people that come to a, a venue to watch him speak, to support him, to cheer for him and the things that he stands for. Um, the national media are still treating Bernie Sanders more or less like a footnote. I think um, the one of the few areas where Bernie gets a little bit of play is on the Sunday morning talk show uh, circuit, and he does get on those programs on a somewhat regular basis and is able to get his uh, voice out to the public in those arenas. But the challenge about those arenas is who is the audience for the Sunday morning political talk shows, well, they're more or less the people that are very, very um, interested and involved in politics, and they're the political insiders. 
and we know those are not the areas where Bernie's message has the uh, strongest impact and the most uh, resounding effect and basically the audience that needs to see Bernie the most is an audience that generally is not following those particular programs. So back to uh, this particular article. A Black Lives Matter activist was physically beaten and thrown out of a Donald Trump rally in Birmingham, Alabama on Saturday, garnering the real estate mogul and reality TV star an abundance of news coverage. Meanwhile, on the same day, Bernie Sanders appeared with rivals Martin O'Malley and Ben Carson in Columbia, South Carolina, to address racism in the criminal justice system on BET Network's live-streamed Criminal Justice Forum. Coverage of the event, which was organized by bipartisan African-American group The 2020 Club, was virtually non-existent outside of BET's own site and alternative news outlets. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton got the attention of CNN and other major news outlets for drawing a hard line against the Islamic State on November 20. Her speech was televised. On the same day, Bernie Sanders laid out his definition of democratic socialism at Georgetown University. The event was live-streamed. Again, corporate media coverage of the event was sluggish at best. One of the few stories circulating in the mainstream media regarding Bernie Sanders' appearance in South Carolina is buried within a story regarding his struggle to win black voters. Sanders' appearance on the criminal justice forum gave him a decisive victory in the sense that once people hear him speak, they resoundingly support him. And that's pointed out by the poll previously mentioned that happened at that event. And so just a couple of examples there, and there's the, the article goes on um, further and provides a couple of other examples of how the media is covering Bernie Sanders versus how the media covers a Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. So Time Every Year does a person of the year um, issue where they name who the person of the year. So the person of the year for 2015, the Time Board of Directors and or whomever Time um, sits down in a room to uh, choose the official Time Person of the Year are working on that. They may have decided that already. That has not been made public yet. But alongside that official declaration of Time's Person of the Year, Time Magazine has run a poll this year, and they may have done this in prior years as well, um, for the public to vote on who the Person of the Year is. And this particular story is several days old, so I think that voting is now over. Um, but in, in this particular time that this story was written, um, there were 11 days left to vote. Um, and Sanders was leading that poll at that time with 11.2% of the votes, which doesn't sound like a very large number except for there are a whole lot of people that are in this particular uh, vote for Times Person of the Year as decided by 
people voting online. And I believe the current results show that Bernie Sanders is still ahead. And this voting may be over at this point. Um, this particular story I'm looking at now does not say when or whether that uh, voting is over yet. But I believe that voting might be over. And Sanders has 10.4% of the votes, the next highest person in the time person of the year online poll is Malala Yousafzai. Yousafzai. Um, Even reading it, I can't pronounce it right. She has 5.2% of the vote. Um, So Sanders has doubled her vote with 10.4%. The next person in line in the vote has only 3.7% of the vote, and that is Pope Francis. Rounding out the top five, Barack Obama is right behind Pope Francis at 3.5%, and Stephen Colbert is behind Barack Obama at 3.1%. So uh, Bernie Sanders easily taking a win in Times Person of the Year as voted by, um, is voted in an online poll. If we scroll down the list, we see the next uh, presidential candidate to um, end up on the, this list is at 1.8%. And that, you know, not terribly surprisingly, is Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton comes in at 1.4%, which is actually below uh, current Secretary of State John Kerry's results at 1.6%. And below Vladimir Putin at one point, no, at 2.0%. So um, you can see how far down the list uh, it gets before you get to some of those other candidates for president. So another online poll that shows Bernie Sanders with a big win, a big lead among the people. And that is for Times Person of the year. So as I spoke earlier about uh, the political revolution website, um, there's another website. This one's um, independent, but is specifically focused on Bernie's campaign. And this is called Bernie Sanders video. And that would be at berniesandersvideo.com. This is a uh, well-put-together site, um, if not the most attractive site, but the most site, or one of the sites most loaded with really important information. Um, one of the the pieces, or one of the pages on their site, which you can go to and uh, find on their site, I believe it's under the More um button once you get to the Bernie Sanders video site is Bernie Sanders brochures. So on the Bernie Sanders brochures page, there is a, there are links to a number of different um, brochures that you can download and you can print out. They're on a variety of different topics and they have some brochures that are specific to particular states and they do have some brochures that are translated into Spanish and into Chinese. So there's a number of different versions of 
these uh, brochures they have on this site. So a great resource if you want to do some flyering or just want to have some information to hand out to anyone you come across that may be interested in Bernie's campaign. Um, go to BernieSandersVideo.com and go to the More page and find the Bernie Sanders brochures and you'll have yourself um, some information to share or to even quote um, when you get in discussions about Bernie Sanders. And finally, this episode, um, if you remember back to last episode, I played a long excerpt from Bernie Sanders' speech at Georgetown University on his vision for democratic socialism in America. And because of that timing of that speech, there was a long, what I consider kind of a second section of that speech that was focused on terrorism and what an appropriate response um, should be and what Bernie Sanders' response to terrorism is. Um, So I have the rest of that speech, the uh, segment that's focused on terrorism and our response to it um, here, and then that will uh, wrap up the show for today. And I'll be back just after the speech ends um, really briefly. Um, Nobody understood better than Franklin Delano Roosevelt the connection between American strength at home and our ability to defend America around the world. And that is why he proposed a second Bill of Rights in 1944 And he said in that very same State of the Union, and I quote again, America's own rightful place in the world depends in large part upon how fully these and similar rights have been carried into practice for all our citizens. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace, lasting peace in the world, end quote. Now, I am not running for president to pursue reckless adventures abroad, but to rebuild America's strength at home. I will never hesitate to defend this nation, but I will never send our sons and daughters to war under false pretense or pretenses about dubious battles with no end in sight. And as we discuss foreign policy, I know that all of you share with me your shock and your horror at what happened in Paris, and you share with me your condolences for the families who lost loved ones and your hopes and prayers that those who were wounded will recover. And also those same thoughts go out to the families of those who lost loved ones in the Russian flight that we believe was taken down by an ISIS bomb, and also those who lost their lives to terrorist attacks in Lebanon and elsewhere. To my mind, it is clear that the United States must pursue policies to destroy 
the brutal and barbaric ISIS regime and to create conditions that prevent fanatical extremist ideologies from flourishing. But we cannot and should not do it alone. Our response must begin with an understanding of past mistakes and missteps in our previous approaches to foreign policy. It begins with the acknowledgement that unilateral military action should be a last resort, not a first resort. And that ill-conceived military decisions such as the invasion of Iraq can wreak far-reaching devastation and destabilization over regions for decades. It begins with the reflection that the failed policy decisions of the past, rushing to war, regime change in Iraq, or toppling Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran in 1953. Mossadegh was the president, CIA and others got rid of him to protect British petroleum interests. The Shah of Iran came in, a brutal dictator, and he was thrown out by the Islamic Revolution, and that is where we are in Iran today. Decisions have consequences, often unintended consequences. So whether it was Saddam Hussein or Mossadegh or Guatemalan President Albenz in 1954 in Guatemala, Brazilian President Goulart in 1964, Chilean President Allende in 1973, this type of regime change, this type of throwing, overthrowing governments we may not like often does not work, often makes a bad and difficult decision even worse. These are lessons we must learn. After World War II, after World War II in response to the fear of Soviet aggression, European nations and the United States established NATO, the North American Treaty Organization, an organization based on shared interests and goals and the notion of a collective defense against a common enemy. It is my belief that we must expand on these ideals and solidify our commitments to work together to combat the global threat of terror. We must create a new organization like NATO to confront the security threats of the 21st century, an organization that emphasizes cooperation and collaboration to defeat the rise of violent extremism and, importantly, to address the root causes underlying these brutal acts. We must work with our NATO partners. We must work to expand the coalition with Russia. And we must work with members of the Arab League. But let us be very clear. While the United States and other Western nations 
have the strength of our militaries and our political systems. The fight against ISIS is a struggle for the soul of Islam and countering violent extremism and destroying ISIS must be done primarily by Muslim nations with the strong support of their global partners. Now this has been my view long before Paris, but I am very happy to tell you that these same sentiments have been echoed by people like Jordan's King Abdullah II in a speech just Sunday in which he said that terrorism is the greatest threat to our region, the Gulf region, Middle East, and that Muslims must lead the fight against it. He noted that confronting extremism is both a regional and international responsibility and that it is incumbent on Muslim nations and communities to confront those who seek to hijack their societies and their religion with generations of intolerance and violent ideology. And let me congratulate King Abdullah not only for his wise remarks but also for the role that his small country only for his wise remarks but also for the role that his small country is playing in attempting to address the horrific in attempting to address the horrific to combat ISIS to seal the borders that fighters are currently flowing across, to share counterterrorism intelligence, to turn off the spigot of terrorist financing, and to end support for exporting extremist ideologies. Now, what does that mean? What it means is that in many cases, we must ask more from those countries in the Gulf region. While Jordan, Turkey, Egypt, and Lebanon, in their own ways, have accepted their responsibilities for taking in Syrian refugees, other countries in the region have done nothing or very little. Equally important, and this is a point that may make some people uncomfortable, but it is a point that must be made. Countries in the region like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, the UAE, countries of enormous wealth and resources have contributed far too little in the fight against ISIS. That must change. King Abdullah is absolutely right when he says that the Muslim nations must lead the fight against ISIS, and that includes, and must include, some of the most wealthy and powerful nations in the region who, up to this point, have done far too little. Saudi Arabia, turns out, has the third largest defense budget in the world.
Yet instead of fighting ISIS, they have focused more on a campaign to oust Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen. Kuwait, a country whose ruling family was restored to power by the United States driving Saddam Hussein's Iraq out of Kuwait, has been a well-known Kuwait people in Kuwait have been well-known sources of financing for ISIS and other violent extremists. It has been reported that Qatar will spend up to $200 billion on the 2022 World Cup, including the construction of an enormous number of facilities to host that event. $200 billion on hosting a soccer event, yet very little to fight ISIS. Worse still, it has been widely reported that the government there has not been vigilant in stemming the flow of terrorist financing and that Qatari individuals and organizations funnel money to some of the most extreme terrorist groups in the region. All of this has got to change. Wealthy and powerful Muslim nations in the region can no longer sit on the sidelines and expect the United States, our young men and women, and our taxpayers to do it for them. They have got to come up to the plate. As we develop a strongly coordinated effort We need a commitment from these countries that the fight against ISIS takes precedence over the religious and ideological differences that hamper the kind of cooperation that we desperately need. Further, we all understand that Bashar al-Assad, president of Syria, is a brutal dictator who has slaughtered many of his own people. I am pleased that we saw last weekend Diplomats from all over the world, known as the International Syria Support Group, set a timetable for a Syrian-led political transition with an open and fair election. These are the promising beginnings of a collective effort to end the bloodshed and move toward a political transition in Syria. The diplomatic plan for Assad's transition from power is a good step in a united front. But our major priority must be to defeat ISIS. Nations all over the world who share a common interest in protecting themselves against international terrorism must make the destruction of ISIS the highest priority. Nations in the region must commit that instead of turning a blind eye, they will commit their resources to preventing the free flow of terrorist finances and fighters to Syria and Iraq. We need a commitment that they will counter the violent rhetoric that fuels terrorism, rhetoric that often occurs within their very borders. This is the model which we must pursue in order to address the global threats that we face. While individual nations obviously have historic disputes, the United States and Russia now have very strong differences of opinion on some very serious issues. 
Iran and Saudi Arabia, to put it mildly, do not like each other. <laughs> but the time is now to do everything possible to put aside those differences to work toward a common goal of destroying ISIS. Sadly, as we have seen recently, no country is immune from attacks by the violent organization called ISIS. Thus, we must work with our partners in Europe, the Gulf region, Africa, and Southeast Asia, all along the way, asking the hard questions whether their actions are serving our unified purpose. The bottom line is that ISIS must be destroyed, but it cannot be defeated by the United States alone. A new and effective coalition must be formed with the Muslim nations leading the effort on the ground, while the United States and other major forces provide the support they need. Let me uh, conclude uh, by once again uh, thanking all of you for being here today. Uh, all across this country, there is um, a significant alienation from the political process. People look to Washington and they throw their hands up and they say, what in God's name is going on there? Why aren't our senators and our congressmen paying attention to our needs? Why aren't we developing a rational foreign policy rather than talking again about getting involved in a quagmire in the Middle East which could lead to perpetual warfare? So let me conclude just by saying this. The problems that we face as a nation are indeed very, very serious. I've talked, talked on some. There's a lot we haven't even touched upon. But by and large, all of these problems were caused by bad human decisions. And if we come together, if we stand together, if we do not allow ourselves to be divided up by race, by whether we're gay or whether we're straight, whether we're born in America, we weren't born in America, whether we're a male or a female, if we stand together and if we focus on how we can create sane foreign policy, how we can rebuild the middle class, how we can combat climate change, how we can create a nation in which we end racism and homophobia, if we are prepared to do that, if you, as young people, are prepared to engage in the political process, I have no doubt that there is nothing, nothing, nothing that together we cannot accomplish. Thank you all very much. Senator, again, we can't thank you enough for being here today and 
we've, uh, the Institute of Politics and Public Service invited all the major presidential candidates. I think it's a testament to your vision that you were the first to accept our invitation. Thank you for being here. Uh, and it's clear you have a lot of friends in this room. Um, well, let's get right into it. Uh, we received a lot of questions uh, from students as they were waiting in line in the, in the rain this morning. And you covered a lot of ground. Um, not surprisingly, sort of the questions, and the questions are, uh, are very good. Uh, I'm not editing any of these questions. I am going to group some of them together, though, where they were on a common theme. So let's begin with the central premise, at least of the first part of your remarks, uh, and that was a discussion of democratic socialism. I think your remarks, you did a very good job of describing what it means to you. But as you know, Senator, um, there's a lot of confusion just around the word. Uh, Robert France, a freshman from Brooklyn who specifically asked me to shout out Brooklyn right there, um, asks, you know, why do you choose to identify as a socialist when it seems in your platforms you are more in the middle of the spectrum between capitalism and socialism. Well, Axel Kayak, a freshman from Paris, France, in the School of Foreign Service, says, um, in France there's no problem with the word socialist. And considering myself a socialist, I feel like the cultural and historical pressure pushes you to call yourself a democratic socialist although I can't see the difference between the two. So these two questions alone show some of the differences in, in, in how people view the word and you. Um, I'm wondering if you would comment to that and maybe discuss that confusion and, and, and clarify it just a little bit. Okay. I, I think uh, the reason that I have always, throughout my political career, going way back when I was mayor of Burlington, defined myself as a democratic socialist is that that, in fact, is my vision. And my vision is not just making modest changes around the edge. It is transforming American society to make it into a much more vibrant democracy and an economy which works much, much better for working families. And by the word socialism, what is implicit in that to mean? is that it is imperative that if we are serious about change, and a lot of people want change, but at the end of the day, real change does not take place unless we have the courage to take on the very powerful special interests that control our country. Now, that's my view. Not everybody here may agree with me, and certainly most people in Congress would not. But I think... At the end of the day, what we have got to recognize is not just that we are experiencing mass income and wealth inequality or declining middle class, but that a small number of people have extraordinary power. And if we are not prepared to take them on and to tell them that they cannot run the government for their own interests, the real change that many of us want will never take place. So when I use the word socialist, and I know some people are uncomfortable about it, I say that it is imperative that we create a political revolution, that millions of people get involved in the political process, and that we create a government that works for all, not just the few. 
staying on this topic for at least one more question. David Alzate, a, a sophomore in the School of Foreign Service from Quito, Ecuador, writes, points out that Margaret Thatcher once said, socialists always run out of other people's money. My question is, how will your policies promote wealth creation to ensure their long-term sustainability rather than simply depend on the redistribution of existing wealth? Well, for a start, David, given the fact that we have seen trillions of dollars being transferred in the last 30 years from the middle class to the top one-tenth of one percent, we start from a position that there is already a lot of money out there. And that is an important point that has to be made. You know, we are not a poor country. We are the wealthiest country in the history of the world. And we should be doing a lot better for our working people, should not be having 47 million people living in poverty. But how do you create wealth? Of course wealth is, has to be created. And one of the points that I made in my remarks, let me give you one example of it. I believe that we significantly strengthen our economy by having a Medicare for all single-payer system, which will free millions of people to get involved in creating businesses and in creating jobs who today are trapped at work only because they get the health insurance that that employer is now providing. I think that if you have a trade policy not designed by corporate America to shut down plants in America and move abroad, but a trade policy which works for the American worker, you can create over a period of years millions of decent paying jobs. I believe that when you raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, it's not only the right thing to do, but as Roosevelt talked about in the 1930s, when you put money, disposable income, into the hands of people today who have no disposable income, they will then take that money, spend it, and create jobs. So I think the policies that I am advocating will in fact create wealth, will strengthen the economy. These are diametrically opposed and opposite to this trickle-down economic theory that says if we give tax breaks to billionaires in Wall Street, somehow or another, that will benefit the middle class and the poor. History has been very clear. That is a false doctrine. It hasn't worked. I think I'd probably be run off campus if I didn't move to this topic next. And it's one that you touched on in your remarks, and that is uh, the cost of college tuition. Julia Friedman, a freshman from Albuquerque, New Mexico, asks, under your plan to reduce the cost of college, will the tax on Wall Street speculation be sufficient to cover the cost of the plan? And Zachary Schroepfer, um, a freshman in the business school from Tallahassee, uh, writes, as many of us know, one of your main policies is to make all public universities tuition-free. In the United States, many of the greatest universities are private universities. Georgetown. <laughs> so how do you plan to combat the high prices of private universities? Good. Excellent um, questions. Uh, for a start, um, the answer to the first question is yes. The legislation that I've introduced does a number of things. Uh, it makes public colleges and universities tuition-free. It also addresses the very significant crisis in this country of millions of people paying very high interest rates on their student debt. And I suspect some of you guys are going to be graduating here deeply in debt. I see a, at least one person there. <laughs> I suspect there are many more. All right. 
So the, 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 what we do are two things, all right? Public colleges and universities tuitionally, and then what we also say is that it is a little bit crazy that today you have many people out there who are paying interest rates on their student debt of six, eight, 10% when we can refinance our homes at three or 4%. So what our legislation does is allow people the ability and the freedom to get the lowest possible interest rates on their debt that they can get. And that will save people all over this country collectively many, many billions of dollars. Now, if you add those two features together, uh, free tuition in public colleges and universities and substantially lowering interest rates on student debt, it is an expensive proposition. It costs about $70 billion a year. And yes, it can be paid for by a tax uh, on Wall Street speculation. All right, second point about private universities, of course. We know that Georgetown and, and many other uh, private universities do an extraordinary job, and we're all proud of the quality of education they provide. Our legislation includes substantially increasing Pell Grants to make sure that working class and lower income families, middle class families, can get the help they need if they choose to send their kids here to Georgetown or Harvard or any place else. We also significantly increase work student, student work programs so that universities can have funds available to, uh, to employ students on campus. So your point is well taken. Our legislation also makes uh, private colleges and universities less expensive. Let's move to the second uh, portion of your speech. Um, Molly Coyle, a junior in the College of Arts and Sciences from Denver, asks, with your strong beliefs in pacifism, how would you address the recent and escalating violence of ISIS? Does being a democratic socialist state entail opening borders to Syrian and other refugees? And Peter Abdo, uh, a freshman in the college from Bethesda, asks, given recent attacks by ISIS worldwide, more generally, how will you ensure the safety of the American people? Okay, first of all, let me respond to the first question. You know, and, and I have a lot of respect for people who may be pacifists. I am not a pacifist. Um, what, in fact, um, I voted for, I voted uh, against the very first Gulf War, which I had to vote on about within the first month that I was elected to Congress. I think history will record that as the right vote. And then in 2002, after listening to Bush and Cheney, uh, and Donald Rumsfeld, and listening carefully to what they had to say, I concluded that they were not telling the truth, and I voted against the war in Iraq. But I did vote for the war in Afghanistan because I thought that Osama bin Laden should be held accountable. Uh, and I did vote uh, for President Clinton's effort to end the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo. So, no, I am not a pacifist. I think that war should be the last resort, but we have the strongest military on earth, and of course we should be prepared to use it uh, when it is necessary. Um, in terms of where we are uh, right now, I think the main point that I try to make in my remarks is I think it would be a terrible mistake for many, many reasons for the United States virtually unilaterally to get involved in the war in Syria 
or re-involved in the war in Iraq. And the nightmare is that we send our troops in there in combat. They come back in caskets. We send more troops in. A plane gets shot down. We send more planes in. And 20 or 30 years from now, we're still talking about how we get out of the quagmire in that region of the world. I agree very, very strongly with King Abdullah, who was absolutely right. What is going on there is a struggle for the soul of Islam. There are millions and millions and millions of Muslims who detest and are disgusted with what ISIS and other extremist groups are doing. But now they are going to have to get into the process. It is their troops that are going to have to be on the ground. We should be supportive, and I support President Obama's efforts with airstrikes, with special forces. But the leadership must come from the Muslim nations. In terms of how we protect our country, obviously, we have got to be super vigilant against terrorist attacks. I know there's a lot of discussion about refugees. Let me say a word on that. I am not happy to hear what I have heard in recent days about people who are talking about going into or maybe closing down mosques in America. I'm not happy about hearing that we should close our borders to men, women, and children who have been displaced, driven out of their homes because of terrorism. And I believe that, yes, after thorough screening, which we have the capability of doing, working with the rest of the world, we should accept refugees from that region. That's the moral thing to do. And accepting refugees is what America has always done. And I think it's improper to turn our back on those peoples now. Uh, the next couple of questions uh, grouped together um, come from something that I think created a lot of buzz that you said in the, in the debates. Um, uh, and it's about climate change and specifically its link uh, to terror and terrorism. Uh, Jonathan Amen, a uh, freshman in the business school from Port Orange, Florida, and Bryce Couch, uh, a freshman in the School of Foreign Service from Texas, both asked very similar questions about how can you elaborate on the link between Absolutely. the two and what's your plan to address both? Absolutely. Look, obviously, as I hope I made clear this afternoon, organizations like ISIS, terrorist organizations, are a major threat. They have got to be destroyed. But if you look into the future, this is not Bernie Sanders, this is the CIA, this is the Defense Department. This is countries all over the world. This is what they are saying. If we do not get our act together, if there is more drought around the world, if there is more flooding, if there are more extreme weather disturbances, if sea levels continue to rise and flood coastal regions, there will be a massive displacement of people. People need water. People need land to grow their crops. And if they do not have that land and water, they're going to migrate. And they're going to be in competition with other peoples for limited natural resources. And when that happens, according to the CIA, according to our own Defense Department, that lays the groundwork for international conflict. So in my view, it is not debatable. Of course, climate change 
is a major, major inducement to international, international uh, conflict and also to terrorism. For example, right now, in Syria, as a result of a sustained drought, people have left the rural areas, flooded into the cities, causing more instability and becoming people who could succumb to extremist propaganda. Massive instability in Syria. So what we have to do, and by the way, you know, when I was your age, the challenge of my generation was civil rights. And all over this country, and I was involved when I was at the University of Chicago, but young people stood up and they said, you know what? We're going to end segregation in America. And those of us who were northern, northern schools helped out financially, our brothers and sisters fighting in the South who were getting their heads busted open, and we did what we could where we were. My guess, among many other issues that are out there, one of your great challenges today, continue the fight against racism and sexism and homophobia. But also understand that we are fighting for the future of the planet. And if we do not move aggressively, I'm on the Energy Committee in the Senate and the Environmental Committee. I've talked to scientists all over the world. And what they are telling us is we have a small window of opportunity to transform our energy system away from fossil fuel into energy efficiency and sustainable energy. We need to take on the fossil fuel industry who are looking at short-term profits ahead of the future of this planet. And I hope you will be involved in that effort to transform our energy system. Senator, I know you have to leave momentarily, and so I want to close with uh, one last grouping here, and I think it's an important one because it gets very much at the whole notion of why our institute exists and one of the big points you brought up at the conclusion of your remarks, and that's how do we get this done? Ari Shapiro, a sophomore in the School of Foreign Service, says with a, or asked with a Republican majority in both houses, would you be willing to compromise some of your ideals to get your most important plans passed? And Kumail Aslam, a freshman from San Francisco, writes, my question is, how do you plan on implementing your social programs given the immense opposition in Congress? Okay, great questions. Look, <clears throat> when you are in Congress, by definition, you compromise every day. Uh, and you all should know that when I was in the House of Representatives, and I was there for 16 years, on certain years, I ended up getting more amendments passed on the floor of the House than any other member of Congress. Because when there was an issue out there that I could work with Republicans on, and they were in the majority, we put together a pretty good coalition. Just uh, two years ago, uh, I worked uh, as chairman of the U.S. Senate Committee on Ver Veterans Affairs. Uh, I worked with people like Republicans like John McCain uh, in the Senate and people like Congressman Jeff Miller over in the House, who's chairman of the Veterans Committee there, to put together the most comprehensive veterans uh, health care bill passed in recent memory. So yes, I can compromise. But here is the point that I want to make. On many of the issues that I have talked about, virtually all of them, these are not radical extremist ideas. I am not coming before the American people and say, look, I am this radical, wild-eyed socialist, crazy ideas, but listen to me, you know, that's not the issue. Look at the issues. We want to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. 
raising the minimum wage widely popular. I want to create 13 million jobs by rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure, wildly popular. Pay equity for women workers, wildly popular. Making public, there it is, popular right here, all right. <laughs> Making public colleges and universities tuition free and lowering student debt, widely popular. Combating climate change, there are some Republicans who still don't accept it, but most Americans do, all right. Asking the rich to start paying their fair share of taxes. Vast majority of the Americans think that that's right. So here's my point. Here's my point. The real question is, sure, you've got to compromise. But the really more important point is why is Congress so far out of touch with where the American people are at? The Republican agenda is, among other things, to cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid and give huge tax breaks to billionaires and to ignore the planetary crisis of climate change. How many people believe in that agenda? I don't know, 5%, 10%. Surely a very small minority of people. So when I talk about the political revolution, when I talk about transforming American politics, what I am talking about is bringing in the voices of millions and millions of people who have given up on the political process to have their views and their needs being heard by Congress. When that happens, everything that I talked about will be passed. If that does not happen, virtually nothing will be passed. So what this campaign, from my perspective, is about, and I say this in every speech that I give, it's not just electing Bernie Sanders to be president. I surely would appreciate your support. But, very honestly, it is much more than that because no president, not Bernie Sanders or anybody else, can implement the kinds of changes we need in this country unless millions of people begin to stand up and fight back. And I think right here on college campuses all over this country, we're beginning to see that fight back. We're beginning to see that fight back among low-wage workers who are going out into the streets and saying, you know what, we can't make it on eight or nine bucks an hour. Raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. We are beginning to see that movement develop. And I hope you will be part of that movement because if you are, we can in fact transform this country. Thank you all very much. Thank you. And that was Bernie Sanders speaking at Georgetown University. That was the second half or the second portion of his speech called My Vision for Democratic Socialism in America. And you can find that speech in its entirety um, printed or maybe not printed, but uh, digitally um, on or so there's a few sites that have that online. Um, it was published in In These Times, a uh, great periodical um, with some great progressive stories in it. And also I found it, the source that I have for it is the Progressive Democrats of America Fund website. And let's see... That is pdafund.com. 
And if you search their site, you'll find the text for the speech that Bernie gave at Georgetown University on that site as well. So that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. Um, You can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. And you can find out more about Bernie 2016 at Bernie-2016.com. Playing us out tonight... We are listening to the song Enough is Enough by Piano Man Paul, which you can find on the Piano Man Paul YouTube page. Thanks for listening. We burn coal and oil, we ignore wind and sun. The scientists tell us it just can't go on. The world's getting harder, breathing is tough. Before we burn up, enough is enough. Money buys laws, propaganda and votes Of the people, by the people, for the people is a joke They scare and confuse us, make voting tough While we still have some voice, enough is enough Tax cuts for the rich, pay cuts for the poor Unions are dead and our jobs moved offshore while we're working more hours, still can't catch up. What do we work for? Enough is enough. You can't pay for a doctor, so you best not get sick. 